thanks for tuning in to 90,000 Hours. I'm your host and producer, Robin Landy. Today's episode features Mike Sparks, who is a copywriter and project manager at Roland Corporation, a manufacturer and distributor of electronic instruments and software. Mike lives and works in Seattle, Washington. If you'd like to follow along on Instagram, we can be found at 90000HRSPod. Thanks as always to Eric Kuhn for the use of his music in this episode, and thank you for listening. I guess, I mean, you know, like I worked at like McDonald's when I was 16 for like a month, but I woke up one morning and I had taken acid that night before and I woke up and I was supposed to be at work at like four in the morning and I woke up at three, woke up, I was still kind of awake and I called my boss and I was like, Hey, like I'm not coming in today. I don't feel well. He goes, Oh dude, you can't leave me hanging like this. And I was like, actually, you know what? I'm not coming in again. The drugs I had taken had made me see something clearly and I was, I don't want to work here. And immediately after that, by luck, got a job at Tower Records for a year. And uh, that was like the coolest job I've ever had. I mean, in retrospect, it was, you know, it was a shitty job, but I learned so much about music. You know, I'd played music and stuff when I was younger, even at that point. But it was the first time I actually got to like really learn about the subculture of bands. And and that kind of like aligned a lot of trajectories in my life for like making, oh, like, yeah, music is what I want to do. In, in every way, shape, or form, you know, from the discussions with the curmudgeonly 27-year-olds at that time, which is kind of funny to think about. Ended up quitting that job to go on a cross-country road trip uh, with a couple of my friends and uh, couldn't get the time off and just decided, okay, like, time to move forward. Came back, like, immediately moved in with my girlfriend. We had, like, a chihuahua and a cat with one ear, and I was, like, unemployed and it was a grocery store, like two blocks from my house. And so I went there and just like applied and ended up getting the job and working there for six years, then moving to Seattle after that and ending up working at a natural foods co-op up here for 10 years. So that's like 16 years of the grocery industry. I, I loved working at the grocery store, um, especially up here in Seattle. It just changed my life for, forever. Um, I've always had a kind of a performative element to my personality. And the grocery store as a cashier, which is what I ended up doing the majority of the time, was this perfect marriage between like being a part of uh, a community, which has always been very important to me. You know, I'm an only child. I really feel like I want to be part of something. And uh, the performative element, like being in a check stand, getting into those really, really high, high frequency sort of... Uh, relationships where you have, you know, two minutes with people and you kind of both get to choose what kind of time that two minutes is going to be, <laughs> you know, is that, is that going to be something where we're taking this two minutes in our stupid lives to like have a connection or is it going to be some horrible nightmare? That connection was really important to me uh, and, and taught me how to like connect with strangers in a really like critical way. Another one of the reasons why I stayed there for so long is because as is the bottom line and everything I've done from, I guess, from the age of 16 is, uh, it was flexible. So I could play music. Um, I could take huge chunks of time off work and, uh, allowed me to, to do what I wanted to do with art. You know, things change again, a decade's a long time. And there came a point where I had some big old long tour and, uh, the boss basically said like, Hey, you can't go on that. And I said, "Mm." (laughs) like, actually I, I, 
I can because I quit, you know, and it was like this split second decision that sort of altered the entire course of my life, right? Like 10 years at a place. I was like, okay, well, I'll be fine. For about six months, I was unemployed for the first time in my entire life uh, was since I was 16. I didn't have a job, didn't even know where to go as a result of that tour and some other kind of personal stuff. I didn't have a place to live. So I was sleeping at a recording studio, sort of out of money. And through some circumstance, I actually got a job at an advertising agency. That advertising agency is pretty big and they have uh, four kitchens. So my job would be to get there at 7 a.m. and just do the dishes. I was like 300 people. And I don't know if you're familiar with agency life, uh, but it's, it's one of the most mystifying, unusual groups of individuals ever. Yeah, marketing and, and that world was, I, I guess I'd never really encountered people like that before. It's just something that I wasn't used to, like a definitely used to like throwing milk on the shelves and like talking to like hippies about Dr. Bronner's. And then all of a sudden people are building decks, which I didn't even know what that meant at the time. And, uh, you know, having these meetings and scrums and forever uncoiling the mysteries of sales language and stuff like that. And so I was doing this really bucolic sort of like shitty job in the middle of all that. And, you know, don't take it from this interaction alone, but I can be sort of charming and <laughs> I ended up, you know, making friends, you know, because I was like the first guy they saw at eight in the morning was like a hungover musician. And I'm like, what's a, what's your deal? You know, like just like started sort of learning the ins and outs of the agency itself. Honestly, in a lot of ways, that was like the best job I've ever had. Doing dishes is um, easy. It's super easy. And I, I liked it because I would just like talk to people. And then when my hangover would kick in around two, I'd just get like really bummed out, do the dishes slowly and like listen to music and... uh through that and through kind of seeing what people do, I mean, I didn't even really know what like a copywriter was. Uh, I knew that they were a writer, uh, but I didn't know like in what way or like I didn't know what a project manager was. I know obviously the words say you manage projects, but that degree of sort of white collar ambiguity was just so beguiling to me. The more I got to know it, the more I kind of realized like, dude, like I think I could do this job. M maybe, you know, th th there's always that degree of like, you know, I don't have a college degree. They all do. And actually, there was this one woman. She told me one day while we were drinking rosé uh, that she didn't have a college degree. And like this thing went off in my head. I was like, oh, dude, like all I have to do, it's like be in the right place at the right time. At that time, my friend stumbled into getting a job at Roland. That branch of Roland was something really, really fresh. And so they had just started one in Seattle called Roland Cloud which basically manages their VST or plug-in or digital versions of like classic synthesizers. I've always been a writer to a certain degree. Um, I mean, I've always kept a journal, always wrote stories and poems. Basically, they needed a writer and she recommended me. And by against all odds, I got the job. My average day isn't unlike any office job. I get to work around nine and spend the first couple hours of my day usually having organizational meetings, something that I believe that they call scrum, <laughs> um, which is essentially where you sit down with your team and you all talk about what you're going to do that day and how you govern the priorities of your actions versus 
what the end goal needs to be. So I'll sit in meetings for about an hour, just discussing that with the different teams. My team is more of a content creation team. It's not traditional marketing in that we create assets, um, whether that be websites or you know pages on a website, social content, or the actual content, like when there's a release, for instance. So say you know we're releasing a patch collection. Again, as I mentioned, it's virtual versions of classic Roland synthesizers. So you've got like your Juno 60, except for it's not a synthesizer at your house. It's a synthesizer on the computer that you run with like Pro Tools or GarageBand or Logic or whatever. You know, we have the synthesizer and then in order to create more value add and retention for people who are invested in the service, we will create collections of like presets, additional presets for the synthesizers, which is like super commonplace stuff in this world. And so as a copywriter, what I usually do is I get those presets and I listen to them and then I write about how they sound in a way that will be appealing to both the people who are already invested in the service and then also be intriguing and have enough you know, marketing language in them to invoke interest in those who are not involved. So basically I hear a bunch of keyboard, you know, blips and bloops and I go, oh, this is timeless, classic, uh, you know, Roland lead sounds. And uh, it, it's actually kind of funny, like the amount of adjectives I've gone through describing like the same five sounds. So I guess the main difference between writing a sonnet and writing a piece of copy is artistic expression is not necessarily the bottom line when it comes to copy. You know, you, you want to be able to explain something to someone who has no idea what you're explaining or, or why they care. Like you have to convince them to care. You have to convince them to understand something that they generally don't understand at all in a way that is both clear and engaging, which is way harder than you would think it is especially coming from a place as like a quote unquote artist, which I vaguely consider myself one, like my initial instinct is always to write, like, you know, use words like Leviathan or like, you know what I mean? Phrase things in a way that, that makes me sound smart and interesting. And that unfortunately not everybody who uh, does roll and stuff knows me or thinks I'm charming. So <laughs> I guess coming from a creative space as a writer, transitioning over to this kind of writing seemed daunting to professional marketing material and, and, and copy to sell things. I'm not afraid of the blank page. I never have been creating something, uh, whether it's writing or music, it comes naturally to me. So writing about um, these synthesizers, also something that I kind of know about, um, that's natural too. And there's a, a through line of passion involving all those things. Writing something to explain something to someone, on the other hand, is not something I've really done. And that's been a, a journey, um, starting from, you know, writing my first piece of copy and getting feedback from my boss about that and him being like, hey, like, you know, sorry, James Joyce, but this isn't what we're looking for here. And kind of being like confused and defeated, thinking, oh, well, this is just an amazing piece of art I gave you. And him saying, sure but that's not why we're here. You know, we're not here to feed your ego, Michael. That was really disheartening at first because I thought, oh, I can write, you know, like you can't write. What are you talking about? But learning about like how to write like that has actually been nothing but helpful. It's expanded my lexicon, both literally and metaphorically, 
in that I have more tools to do what I want to do. So explaining something simply, powerfully, and with purpose, as opposed to watching something, you know, disintegrate into a nebula of adjectives. Finding that through line with those things is, has actually been helpful for my creative process and made me understand that, oh, like, you know, I do have value on this level too. You know, not everybody can sit down and explain something. And I guess I didn't know that I could, and I learned how. It's not writing poetry, which is, I prefer to do. I'd still call it creative work, at least the way it works with me. I think a lot of copywriters don't consider their work creative. I mean, I guess it's a different kind of creative, you know? It's like Don Draper kind of creative, where you have to figure out how to cut through everything and sell something or whatever. I don't know, I've, I've never seen that show. I've heard it's really good. The formula, the, the chipping away at something until it's just there enough to do exactly what it's supposed to do. Honestly, being a project manager, is one of the best parts of my job and the part that I fell into the easiest and that I feel like I was destined to do my whole life. I, I feel like I was preparing for this job uh, since I was 20 years old. What is playing music? I mean, it's you're in a band, right? And you're with a group of people and somebody's got to steer the ship. And intrinsically, that person has usually ended up being me in, in one capacity or another. So working with people and sussing out ideas and understanding where we're trying to get to is one of the true joys of my life and something I'm really, really natural at and just a natural facilitator. I luckily had a couple of people who saw how I spoke to people in rooms and, and how I tried to organize people. It's, it's so easy to get lost in like hyperbolic, like business talk. And when I don't know what I'm doing, and there's a certain degree of ambiguity to this sort of work. But if I don't have a clear trajectory about like where I'm headed or what I'm supposed to get done, uh, I, I can't stand it. There have to be deliverables. It's like when you go to cook something, most of the time you know what you're going to cook. You know, you don't just like throw out a bunch of ingredients and go like, I hope something happens. You, you know, you, you, you're you like, I want to make a cake. And so you prepare the ingredients for cake making. You know, it's, it just doesn't work that way. So that part of it and and meeting people on their level is something that the grocery store prepared me for so much. You want to connect with people. Everyone wants to connect with the people around them. And all people need is to see a little bit of a mirror and someone else in order to feel comfortable enough to like find you in that place. And it's the same thing like working with a team, just making sure that everyone is heard and whatever piece of that that you can take from everyone to kind of blend together into the ultimate idea. I think that the world of advertising, at least amongst the kind of people that I hang out with, is antithetical to the entire lifestyle, philosophical perspectives, main axioms of existence. Uh, the advertising world is regarded as, yeah, like the devil, essentially. Um, it's It's where original thought and empathy and altruism go to die. Thus, those kind of people basically spinning a yarn to make money. Yeah, I, I would say that, that that's not something I'm really interested in uh, overall. The unique part of that with Roland is that, okay, so like I'm a musician, right? That's how I identify myself. I'm working for a music company, uh, a big one, a cool one, one that sells and engages with a lot of things that have particular interest to me. 
So in that regard, the volume is turned down. You know, I'm not, not selling MacBooks. It's at least in line with something that I respect, something I appreciate. It's a good organization, that kind of thing. So the yeah, the volume gets turned down on like the marketees, like the white collar like environment. You know, a lot of my bosses have ponytails, but it is a business. Yeah. And it has been a different sort of experience than what I'm used to. Again, it's that one-on-one experience where you're in the check stand and connecting with someone with no real objective, you know, basically just to fucking stand each other while you have to deal with each other. But also it's that opportunity you get to have a connection with someone and be in that place as opposed to being in a meeting in an office in a corporate environment. And then all these other things start sort of coming into the picture. I mean, obviously coming from 16 years of grocery experience and being immediately kind of thrown into an office environment. Oh, it's terrified. Uh, I'd never heard of imposter syndrome before, but oh God, you know, I have a really low threshold for um, fakery. I don't like to be anybody but me. Thankfully, that's worked out for me, but like getting into an office and seeing spreadsheets and and, and decks and presentations with, uh, you know, figures and what's our goal? What's the tactics? You know, like, what do we need to do to connect A to B with the metrics and all this sort of thing? Uh, yeah, that was like really, really bewildering. And sometimes, sometimes it still is. I think I see through it a little bit more now. I think that that language, that dialect is sort of born as a result of like imposter syndrome. I think once you learn the language and you learn how to like figure out <laughs> what makes you sound like, you know, what you're doing, I really think a lot of people operate in that world. And then eventually you, you actually learn what that is through fakery. You start to identify like what actually needs to get done and what, you know, through trial and error, what, what's successful and what's not successful. But yeah, some, some meetings I'm in and we're looking at a graph and I'm kind of like, I feel like we just talked for 20 minutes about something we could have said in 20 seconds, you know, like, and we all know what we're doing here. Why do we have to go through it like this? And sometimes that can be really taxing. Sometimes I'll look at a room full of people all talking or waiting for their turn to talk to basically show that they have value and they have understanding of what's going on. That can be tiring. I didn't know that, you know, white men above 50 know everything. I didn't know that. I didn't know that they were all also musicians. I didn't know that either. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> but um, that's, that's the fucking truth. I don't know if all jobs are important. I do know that spin it however you want to spin it, making money is important. And depending on your seriousness about how much that money means to you and how much you need in order to feel okay about yourself or to feel okay about the kind of life you live, that is directly in proportionate to how serious and how important you think your work is. I know that I work at a company that sells virtual synthesizers. And I know that if that didn't exist, nothing would change. Is that enough for me to consider what I'm doing unimportant? I mean, that's kind of up to me to decide. I think that there is an insular world, a small, a small world of people who are fanatical about synthesizers. And I think that there is a community there that is more vulnerable than it gets credit for. It's a, it's a world of misfits. I think that it's a, a, a unifier. 
And I think that being a part of that and the passion of these people, the obsession of synthesizers can be a crutch for a lot of people in, in a really good way, in a, in a valuable and important way. I don't like walk around thinking about that. I don't consider my job a reflection or having a relationship with my artistry. But that doesn't mean that there isn't crossover occasionally, and that doesn't mean I don't take it seriously. I make enough money now to be okay for the first time in being alive almost 40 years. Uh, that has a lot of value to me. Have I ingested the Kool-Aid? Sometimes. I, I definitely think that advertising is a superfluous type of work. <laughs> you know, I mean, marketing is definitely pulling a string that uh, it's like a ball of rubber bands, right? There's no center to it. But in our capitalist society, this is sort of the way things are engineered and it's a necessary job. And hey, if people want to take that seriously and, and call themselves artists for the phrase, just do it or whatever, if that if that is art, <laughs> there's no doubt that it's art. What intrinsic value does that art have? I, I mean, you know, you, you might want to ask someone with a bigger paycheck. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't, I'm not really sure. Does that kind of art have value? Yes, it has value. What does that value mean? Is it is it neutral value or positive or negative value? And that really just depends on who you are and what your perspective is on it. I, I think intrinsically the word ambition is directly correlated to the word success. And, and what metric, by, by what measurement do you define success? And success for me has always been something illusory, always something that didn't really have any sort of tangibility, it, no, nothing really attached to it that I could ever see. I think that when you pursue art or music, you're charged by passion, right? Not necessarily by ambition, or maybe those are like seeds from the same plant, but you do because you have to do. At least that's been my relationship with it. And for a long time, that was a big motivator in how I behaved. Why I ended up working at grocery stores, which I think is great, good, honest work. But it's the same reason why I dropped out of college. It's the same reason why I've lived so minimally my entire life. Everything to afford a clear trajectory towards chasing my passions. And at some point when adulthood hits you like a punch in the face, you get passion and ambition confused, I think. And it's been my experience so often, especially with musicians. It's like a light bulb goes off in their head when they realize that they've confused those two things. I, I can't tell you how many people I've seen in bands just wake up one morning and quit and realizing that that thing at the end of the tunnel, A, wasn't what they thought it was, B, the sacrifices and intelligence and fortitude it's taken to get to wherever that imaginary place is, because there really is no destination there and it's different for everybody. Whatever sacrifices or ideas that they've sort of moved around in their head to like chase that thing, all of a sudden, like the weight is no longer a gift. Do I feel ambitious about my job is to ask, do I feel passionate about it? To a degree I do. Yes. Um, because I will never forget the lifestyle changes it's afforded me. I am not a rich man, but I have never been anything but a poor man. And now that that's not necessarily the case, I mean, I can't lend you money. 
<laughs> but like now, now that that's not the case, I, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that opportunity. It's taken me a really long time to, to get to a place like that. And a lot of it was because of luck and all those decisions I made to get here. You know, I, I don't pity people who are ambitious and want to climb the corporate ladder and chase that kind of invisible God to get where they think they need to be in order to feel validated by whatever terms their validation impresses upon them. I definitely know that at some point in the last 10 years of my life, I decided that I only make music because I want to. So that passion is separated from the idea of being famous or, 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 or doing anything like that. So being able to take those two things and see both of them individually uh, affects how I appreciate each one. So I make music and I don't like just put my records in a box and go, okay, I did that. You know, I try to have people hear them and I try to do that, but I'm also happy with that relationship concurrently with my relationship with work. If I do a good job, if I can help people feel heard, if I can help create something cool, that's awesome for me. Um, and, and that is like the goal to do a cool thing. Do I need to like do a cool thing in a certain way to make someone happy so I can get a raise and, and like do that kind of stuff. I don't know. I mean, if you do what you're supposed to do, obviously you should be in a good position and like move forward slowly in a trajectory until eventually you shuffle from this mortal coil. Like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think it's confusing when people are really, really worked up about their jobs. I think it's, I think it's kind of nuts, but I see how that, pathway is sort of the only one people know how to chase. It's like the denial of death, right? It's like you're standing on the shoulders of a society where that, that trajectory is how you measure success. And if that's how you need to like not worry about your death or, or not worry about like the things that keep you awake at night, then use that, you know, use that as the tool that you need to use to be happy. I don't need that tool to be happy. I, I, I think happiness is a little overrated or at least blown out of proportion. You know, I mean, <laughs> take five seconds and think about the world we live in and then ask yourself, like, what's there really to be happy about? I don't know. I'm looking forward to dinner later. Um, I have a partner that I adore. Sometimes I get to sit and make music and I get to meet people that I like. And uh, hopefully that's enough for me. And so when I'm dying, I can think, OK, like, that's what I did, at least people didn't think I was an asshole. That's enough for me. Some people would rather be an asshole and, uh, you know, high five a thousand angels in marketing heaven or whatever. I guess ultimately, if I were in like the white sort of negative space of reality, like with Morpheus, like in the matrix, where you could like have all the gun racks come down or, or do whatever. If I, if, if it was a picture I could paint on my own, I would love nothing more than to wake up, eat a delicious breakfast, make music all day, and be creative full time and really get to see that through. That would be awesome. <laughs> I mean, that still, I still think that would be awesome. I don't know if I can handle like the rigmarole of like, like, what's the difference between selling yourself and selling your art versus making art and having that be who you are? Yes, in an ideal world, I would love to just do creative work all the time. The price of that in today's society is exactly the same as having a job. It's a job either way. And those same mechanisms are put in place for creative work and non-creative work in 
our societal structure. Every season of TV that you write for, you have to make sure that the next season is just as good or better. And it's just like, yeah, every time you make music, no matter what you do, you have to up your game. You want to get more popular. You want to get more money. You want to stay relevant. And that's a full-time fucking job. That's like 10 jobs, you know? So if I have to write about a synthesizer to like sit down and like make some tunes and like see God on my terms, then that's what I'm going to do. Ha, ha, ha.